Hey, welcome. I'm Tyler Cole, the Director of Carbon Intelligence here at Freight Waves. We're glad you're here at the Net Zero Carbon Summit on Earth Day. I'm joined for this one by Josh Raglan, Chief Sustainability Officer at Norfolk Southern. Josh, thanks for joining us. No, thank you for having me, Tyler. It's always a pleasure to be on Freight Waves. Great organization. We love having you out here preaching and evangelizing the message of sustainability and low-carbon futures in freight. You're clearly no stranger to the network, uh, and I'm happy to dive in with you here. Let's start briefly about the recent announcement you guys just made. You guys had a, a, a new calculator come out in March. I'd love you to tell the listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, we did. We launched our new carbon calculator last month. And, uh, you know, when I came into this position a couple of years ago, uh, I mainly saw the need. I saw the need from the customer side of uh, wanting to know emissions from their shipments on not just rail, but all transportation modes. And that's a trend we've been seeing that, that's moving forward. And as I started benchmarking what was available, uh, our own internal carbon calculator we had at the time, uh, plus others in the rail industry and transportation as a whole, uh, there's really a gap there. Uh, and that gap is just consistent calculations when you look at the various carbon calculators um, and really some, some quality of data. And I just don't think it was there. Um, you know, the, the most recent FRA publication was done in 2008, and that was comparing truck versus rail efficiency. And they only narrowed it down to six commodity groups at that time. So, you know, I think there was a huge opportunity uh, for us to leverage a project we were already working on around gross ton miles. And so that's, uh, you know, getting gross ton miles at the uh, rail car level. So for every way bill. Uh, and at the same time, we've got a huge focus on fuel efficiency. Uh, so we're pulling fuel data from locomotives every 15 minutes. And that allows us to accurately get fuel burn data from an individual train and apply that to every rail car uh, on that train as it moves across our system. And so we're able to get some really cool data there that now we know the difference, you know, right? We ship 30 commodities, we ship intermodal as well, uh, and there's 17 rail car types. And so we were able to tease out all of that data and create this carbon calculator that's now available on our website. Uh, it's very robust. It catches all of the life cycle emissions of a shipment. Right. It's not just getting product from A to B. But what about the empty miles, you know, returns? What about yard and local service? Uh, if it's intermodal equipment, you have to lift that equipment off and on. So we really think it's a, it's a great product for our customers uh, and potential com- customers as well, as more of them are starting to include, you know, carbon in their uh, logistics decisions. You're absolutely right. And it just plays into so many other trends that we have going in the freight and logistics industry, whether it's digitization, use of big data, how can we take what we're learning and apply that for more positive outcomes, not just from an efficiency and operational cost standpoint, but now through the lens of how do we do this more sustainably for a longer period of time? I love that you guys are leading in this space. And I would encourage all the listeners, if you haven't been on to check it out, it's an easy to use tool. It's better than what else you're going to find out there on the market today. And it's free and available and if you're a customer, I'm sure Josh and his team would love to dive into you how they can help report and measure emissions better. I was saying one thing that really stands out on our carbon calculator, Tyler, is you've got 75,000 choices of origins and destinations across the United States. And we're going to expand this to North America as well. So it's a great tool, not just for the Norfolk Southern Network. It's going to be for the entire uh, Class 1 network across North America. Another really good point, how big collaboration is going to play a role in this. When you start to think about some of these global multimodal supply chains that these big firms have, and they're the ones that have announced emissions reductions targets, there is a need to share and access this data from parties across the supply chain. So 
yeah, thank you guys for doing that and leading the charge. Tell me a little bit, the logical next step from reporting is reducing, right? Where do we think the rail industry and Norfolk Southern specifically are going to see investments happening over the next decade, call it, uh, put on your future thinking cap here. Are we going to get to net zero? How's that happen? You know, for our industry, it's really unique that we have seven class one railroads in North America, and we have all committed to a science-based target for emissions reduction. So it's really taking an industry look and an industry approach, right? We share a lot of assets, including locomotives, um, and we share track rights and things of that nature. So we've got to work together as an industry, and we've got to work with our suppliers. You know, we've got two major OEM suppliers of locomotives. Uh, we've got to work with our fuel suppliers as well. And we're doing that in an industry basis uh, to really push change across our network. So yeah, it's an exciting time. You know, if we look at the course of the next 10 to 20 years in, in the rail freight industry, uh, we've been using diesel fuel for 70 years. To think that that's potentially going to change to something that may be zero emissions uh, in the near future is an exciting time. Uh, and that's where our customers expect us to head there. Uh, our investors expect us to head there and, and our own employees do. So I think it's, it's, we've got a, a lot of synergy uh, within our company, uh, but also within our, our stakeholder group as well. Uh, you know, we're continuing to make locomotives more fuel efficient, uh, making huge progress there. We improved by 7% fuel efficiency just the last two years. You know, that saved us almost 50 million gallons of emissions. And uh, that's important because our scope one emissions are our customers' scope three emissions. And those are more under the radar now. And uh, we mentioned the carbon calculator, but the other thing that we can provide to our customers more accurately now is what their emissions are for their shipments on Norfolk Southern Rail. And we think we can leverage that knowledge to help them out, uh, not only by shipping with NS, but shipping it with rail in general. You're right. That's huge. And few people realize that, that the scope one of the operator is the scope three of the freight buyer in many cases. And, and we work here at Net Zero Carbon, and thank you for being a part of our Freight Waste Carbon Working Group, industry stakeholders helping to make this more accessible and try to move the ball down the field as an industry collaborating towards solutions uh, for making that plain to people. We appreciate that. We do have a big uh, focus here at Freight Waves on the new and the sexy. I like to think Craig pushes that ball pretty hard. Talk to me about some futuristic train solutions. We know that efficiency is probably the most valuable near-term opportunity for us. Um, but we all like to something sleek and new and shiny. You know, we move from wood to coal to diesel. What's the next, uh, you know, engine technology that's going to take over the rail industry? You know, I think what's interesting is we've got a, a number of things in the works at the same time, uh, which is great because it's going to take multiple solutions. I don't think there's going to be one thing that's going to totally replace diesel when we think about the rail freight industry. I think it's going to be multiple things. It's going to depend on location. It's going to depend on uh, fuel availability. Uh, you know, in the near term right now, for the rail industry, it's going to be biodiesel, and then it's going to be renewable diesel. And some of those uh, products are going through various levels of testing right now. Uh, you know, our OEMs, they only approve certain amounts, certain percents, uh, but they're open. And their testing uh, is just now beginning on some higher blends of both biodiesel and renewable diesel products. Uh, the renewable diesel products, you know, 100% blend there, that could reduce carbon intensity anywhere between 50 and 80%. So there is a huge opportunity there. Uh, we need more states to pass low carbon fuel standards, to be honest. Uh, you know, most of this product right now is being made in the Gulf Coast uh, and it's being shipped to the West Coast states because they incentivize refiners to sell in those states, uh, which makes the product affordable. So uh, we could have access to that. There's going to be production uh, capacity issues. Those are going to be addressed, uh, but we need more states to pass some low carbon fuel standards. 
So that's kind of our, our near term. So if we think kind of the 10 to 20 year, uh, you know, along with the, the fuels, continuing to apply technology to our locomotives, batteries, you know, think where we've come from a battery experience. Uh, you know, we created the first battery electric switcher load of locomotive back in 2007. And that was based off the technology at that time. You know, it had almost 1100 12 volt batteries in it to think about that. Um, you know, it was, it, it, was, it was ahead of its time. It worked. It proved the concept would work. Um, but we needed better tap battery technology. We have that now. Um, there's a battery electric locomotive and switcher operation uh, in South America. It's been in service for almost a year now. Uh, the first one is going to be in operations in California here very soon. And there's a number of orders that, that have been placed by some of the uh, uh, some of the other railroads. So we think that's a really near term solution. Uh, these units can get 20 hour service on a two to three hour charge. So if you think about some of our yard locations, uh, they're in urban areas, right? They're surrounded by communities. So not only can you reduce the emissions, you can reduce the noise as well. So that's a really uh, kind of near term. Longer term, zero emissions. You know, what's that product going to be? Uh, you know, hydrogen's kind of where we're all kind of looking at. Uh, hydrogen fuel cells. It's been in use in passenger trains in Europe successfully, but there's not a freight train that has been successfully used in the line service that I'm aware of. Uh, but there's possibilities there. There's a number of pilot projects forthcoming. Uh, and there's a lot of funding available. You know, at the federal level, uh, you've got $8 billion uh, allocated just for hydrogen hubs. And there's a number of states, state groups that are applying for that funding, and we're active in that space as well. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of pilots that have to be tested. There's a lot of infrastructure that's going to have to happen. Uh, you got 27,000 locomotives just owned by the class ones to think about. So we've got to have some proven technology in order to really ramp up orders as we think about how long is it going to take to replace all those units. So, you know, I think it's a really exciting time, uh, but it's going to take industry collaboration. Absolutely. And I'm interested to see which technologies, if there are just one or a couple, kind of win out for which application, right? Can you provide a little bit of, you know, from my own understanding, what sort of emissions reductions are possible with, you know, an EV yard switcher, an electric locomotive compared to hydrogen? Is that similar to renewable diesel? Is it more? Obviously, it depends on the grid, but assume you've got, you know, renewables that are coming in to to provide that electricity. Yeah, it's all going to depend on the source of the electricity. And so it's going to be highly variable based off of location. Uh, But there's also some opportunities there with on-site solar. And that's in storage capacity. And so so that's something we're looking at as well. As we think about um, solar across our system, where we're going to locate that around fueling locations. It just makes sense, not only from supporting electricity, but that's also where we could generate future hydrogen as well. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, Josh, you are a bit of an outlier in the space. When I think about the, the broad, you know, massive people trying to hype sustainable supply chains at the moment. There's very few that have been in the space longer than 10 years, right? Um, you are no stranger to, you know, grassroots conservation movements. And I think that's a really unique perspective you provide um, at, in your role as CSO. Can you walk the, the audience through just a little bit of your journey at NS and, and the value of that, you know, conservation capitalism mindset? Yeah, I'd love to. It is very unique, Tyler. I'm a, I'm a wildlife biologist, but I'm a railroader, you know, so... Uh, got hired on with the railroad industry 25 years ago. It's been a great journey. I worked in nature-based solutions for our company for, for two decades, working a lot in restoring forest and ecosystems, uh, wetland, stream restoration, endangered species management, forest carbon projects. So a lot of boots on the ground work. Uh, interestingly, I also reported to two chief operating officers. 
So I came up through operations at the same time I was working on these nature-based solutions. So it's given me kind of a broad, uh, you know, broad uh, brushstroke of the company and really created a lot of relationships with both our uh, internal, internally with our employees, but also our customers as well. So it is, it's a unique background for sure. <laughs> it definitely makes uh, makes me more inclined to call you the expert in this space because you clearly are. You're certified and experienced. Why do you think, um, or let me rephrase it this way. We want more and more people to make this mission critical at their organizations, in freight and logistics specifically. What are some of the cultural things companies can do to try and get their employees uh, more engaged in sustainability efforts? Is it through, you know, community recycling days, getting out and going to work at food banks? Like, is it, how do you create that culture among a company, even one as large as the NS? You know, that, that is a great question. And that's a challenge a lot of companies face is that you're trying to change a culture, right? And, and for our industry, I like to compare it to safety. You know, historically, the rail industry was not a safe industry. And back in the 80s, we decided to take a different path. And we started benchmarking other companies outside of our industry, learning about that. And in the course of just over a decade, we really changed the culture of the entire rail industry in North America. And that's one of the safest industries there is in the world, you know, safer than grocery chains and hotel chains, for example. So we have a huge culture of safety. And now it's just a part of who we are. Every employee is responsible for safety. And when we succeed in sustainability, it will be the same. It will be every employee's responsibility. They understand that. How do you start culture change? You start at the top. You start at the top of the company. Uh, we've got a corporate sustainability council. Uh, we've got members from every department, but we also have pillars. We've got five pillars of our environmental strategy. And there's a cross-departmental team that makes up every pillar. So there's a working group for each one of them. In fact, we just had one of those meetings earlier today. And uh, it's really about how do we engage, create targets, action plans, and then go back to our departments and build buy-in and, and get our employees engaged. So, uh, you know, sustainability is not against business. Sustainability is pro-business. And you've got to have the two working together in, in order to achieve results. I'm going to put that on my wall and look at that every day. So super important. And I think if I were going to summarize that for our listeners, right, we're talking about taking ownership, making it accountable internally and cross-functionally uh, and also collaboratively among the industry to prioritize what you're doing. So we start with measuring, we set targets, we revisit those targets and we make progress and we report on it every year, right? Is that the brief synopsis for listeners? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And you know, when it, we have six tenets of safety and, and one of those tenets is, is uh, sustainability is responsibility of every, every employee. When we first started, it said every supervisor. Well, then at some point we said, you know, no, no, it's not just the supervisor's responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility. And that's where we need to, uh, to head with sustainability. I think we're going to get there. I'm optimistic. Yeah, Thanks for I'm leading the well. charge and, and for sharing a, the stage with me today. You're most welcome. It's been great, uh, great being with you. We'll do it again soon. Thanks, Josh. Take care.